This podcast is brought to you by Reynolds & Reynolds, the industry leader in automotive technology. Learn how operating differently can help you overcome the pressures facing your dealership today at reyrey.com slash operate differently. That's R-E-Y-R-E-Y dot com slash operate dash differently. Want to dive deeper into the topics you hear about on Daily Drive? We're offering listeners a special offer, 20% off a one-year automotive news digital subscription. That gets you access to all of our news, information, and analysis made for automotive industry leaders like you. Go to autonews.com slash daily drive promo to redeem. Welcome to Daily Drive for Wednesday, September 6, 2023. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News here in Detroit. And I'm Kellen Walker in Las Vegas. Today on the show, a survey finds car brands fell short on consumer privacy protections. We'll tell you about two executive job promotions announced this week. And NHTSA warns that millions of airbag inflators should be recalled. Plus, a conversation about what happens if the UAW decides to strike all of the Detroit three automakers at once. The goal of a strike, the goal of a walkout of all three companies, besides the shock and awe factor, is to strong arm them into a better deal. And you can't do that if you can't last very long on the picket line. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. An evaluation of 25 vehicle brands' consumer privacy policies found none of them offer adequate protection. That's according to Mozilla's Privacy Not Included survey released Tuesday. The survey said each brand collects too much data, can share or sell data too widely, and fails to grant drivers control over their data. The survey found all 25 car brands reviewed collect more personal data than necessary and use that information beyond operating the vehicle. Some brands even collect data about drivers' sex lives and genetics. Mozilla said automakers harvest personal information in a variety of ways, including through sensors, microphones, cameras, connected phones, and company websites. The survey's program director said pretty much all car companies are a privacy nightmare and urged policymakers and regulators to get involved. Mozilla runs the Firefox web browser and operates a virtual private network, email software, and other privacy-oriented products. Privacy Not Included has reviewed smart speakers, dating apps, robot vacuums, even sex toys. This is the first time the survey has reviewed car brands. The paper's authors said cars were, quote, the worst product category ever to have been reviewed in the survey. Audi of America has named a new chief marketing officer. The automaker tapped Emily Cotter, its chief communications officer, to become its CMO. In the new reorganized role, she'll run both marketing and communications for the German premium brand in the U.S. The new role, announced Tuesday, is effective immediately. Cotter succeeds Tara Rush, who left the automaker in July. Used vehicle dealership operator America's Car Mart has announced a promotion this week. Its president, Doug Campbell, will succeed Jeff Williams as CEO next month. Campbell will remain the company's president and will join its board of directors. Williams will stay on the board and hold a CEO emeritus title through the end of fiscal year 2024. And the nation's top auto safety regulators said 52 million airbag inflators made by ARC Automotive and Delphi are defective and should be recalled. The agency's initial decision affects about 41 million driver and passenger inflators made by ARC from 2000 through January 2018. 
It also affects about 11 million driver inflators made by Autoleave acquired Delphi under a licensing agreement with ARC. The agency will hold a public hearing October 5th. ARC and other parties can present arguments showing there is no defect. If NHTSA makes a final decision that the inflators contain a safety defect, ARC will be required to file notice of the defect with the agency, and automakers will be ordered to carry out recalls. ARC did not immediately respond to a request for comment. The inflators are installed in vehicles manufactured by 12 automakers. NHTSA said airbag inflators may rupture, causing metal debris to be ejected. It's the latest action amid an eight-year investigation of rupturing airbag inflators manufactured by ARC. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, we know that data is worth more than gold these days, but why do automakers collect more personal information than necessary? Is it a play to sell leads? Well, they want more gold, that's for sure. So, yeah, I think it's it's something about whether it's leads or just predictive human behavior. You know, the, the market researchers will find amazing correlations between certain elements of a person's behavior or maybe cross elements where there's a, a couple of things that correlate and might indicate a person's eagerness to buy a vehicle or how much they're willing to spend. Clearly, this goes uh, off the chart of the creepiness index, and it seems very likely to lead to some regulation. It makes me nervous to connect my phone to my car. Jeez. Uh, coming up, we'll talk about the possibility of a UAW strike targeting all of the Detroit Three at the same time and what that would mean for the entire industry. That's next on Daily Drive. The auto industry's shift to carbon neutrality is here and it's accelerating. But is it enough? This is a moral imperative, an economic imperative, a moment of peril, but also a moment of extraordinary possibilities. No more hesitancy, no more excuses, no more waiting for the others to move first. There is simply no more time for that. Driving to Zero is a new podcast series from Automotive News that looks at the auto industry's roadmap to carbon neutrality. We take a big picture look at the environmental, political, and social trends pushing the move toward a greener future. And we pull back the curtain on how these decisions are being made at the highest levels. My team and I went to each car company separately. We sat down and we said, you know, what can you do? What you cannot do? How much time you need? How much it's gonna cost you? And that pay off big time. I said, you know, the, the headline that you need is is GM believes in an all-electric future. And I think Dan Ammon and Mary Barra pretty much said the same thing, which is, is like, but but we, we don't. Spoiler alert, they come around to that idea. Find out how and much more. I'm Jake Neer. Join me and Automotive News Executive Editor Jamie Butters on Driving to Zero, available wherever you get your podcasts starting September 11th. Economic uncertainty, vehicle affordability, and ever-increasing customer expectations are threatening the profitability and efficiency gains you've made over the last couple of years. You may be finding the strategies you've used to improve performance in the past just aren't as effective as they once were. You offer online options so customers can begin the buying process remotely, but your salespeople have to rebuild the deal or correct it during the in-store appointment. You ask your advisors to be proactive about calling customers to get work approved, but still wind up with occupied bays and stalled jobs when the customer doesn't answer the phone. Your business office clerks are trying to process deal jackets faster, but funding still takes weeks. The strategies you've used to improve performance in the past just aren't as effective as they once were. Getting better at outdated and inefficient processes 
will only get you so far. Let's face it, Netflix isn't a household name because they got really good at mailing DVDs. And nearly half of Apple's revenue comes from the iPhone, not from the computers the company was founded on. These companies evolved as new challenges presented themselves instead of sticking with the status quo. It's time for a mindset shift. It's time to operate differently. Finding new and innovative ways to operate is essential to effectively managing the pressures facing your dealership. Visit rayray.com slash operate differently to get started. That's R-E-Y-R-E-Y dot com slash operate dash differently. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. Never in the UAW's 88-year history has it attempted a national strike at each of the Detroit Three simultaneously. But that unprecedented and potentially economically devastating scenario remains in play as contract negotiations with the automakers enter a critical post-Labor Day stretch heading into the contract's expiration September 14th. Our own Michael Martinez wrote about it on autonews.com. I talked with him about it here at the Automotive News offices in Detroit. Michael Martinez, welcome back to Daily Drive. Thanks for having me. I'm sitting at my desk this morning here in the newsroom. Our publisher, Casey Crane, just stopped by, say he'd just gotten back from uh, Munich. You know, big German show, all the German brands, a bunch of Chinese brands with their EVs, and everybody there is talking about the UAW strike. <laughs> you know, the, the concern and the anxiety over the risk of a strike and the, or let's be honest, the likelihood of a strike uh, is on everyone's minds. It's, you know, it's, it's dealers, it's manufacturers around the world. Of course, the, the suppliers, you had a big story we had online today, you know, kind of looking at, at how this might play out. Let's start with the most incredible <laughs> possible scenario, which is walking out of talks and walking out of the factories for all three automakers at once. What what would that look like? Well, we don't really quite know because it's never happened before. The union's been around for 88 years. They've never walked out of each of the Detroit three simultaneously. That's something that Sean Fain's continued to leave on the table as recently as Labor Day when he was asked about it. He said, everything's on the table. The big three remain the strike target. So he's not backing down mm -hmm. from that really incredible and potentially economically devastating scenario. There's a bunch of different options when it comes to walking out of all three companies. You could just straight up leave every single plant across North America for Ford, GM, and Stellantis. Things would shut down immediately. The only downside there is that the union strike fund would be depleted pretty rapidly. They have about $825 million in that fund. Workers would start to receive 500 bucks a week on day eight of the strike, so the second week. You do the math, that's about 11 weeks, but you also have to factor in healthcare costs, which mm. if you remember back to 2019, GM continued to pay healthcare costs during that 40 day strike. Things are really contentious right now. I'm not so sure the automakers would agree to keep doing that. So that's another cost that could deplete the union strike fund even more rapidly. So if you think about that, the goal of a strike, the goal of a walkout of all three companies, besides the shock and awe factor is to strong arm them into a better deal. Mm -hmm. And you can't do that if you can't last very long on the picket line. The other option would be to do a targeted bottleneck strike at a couple specific parts plants that would have a ripple effect and eventually take down other assembly plants. But there's a lot of uh, risks involved in I mean, like generally you, you would say in a year of uh, contract negotiations with a contract expiring, you can't do a bottleneck strike. You can't just strike at the powertrain plants. 
because it has to be like a, then a local issue. And it's kind of suspicious to have uh, half a dozen local issues pop up at critical plants at a time when the union wants to go on strike <laughs> nationally. Exactly. This could be a really effective strategy for the union, especially in terms of saving that strike fund money, but it's really fraught with legal risk. And that first issue is exactly what you said. What exactly are they striking over? Because you could easily make the case, well, if Ford's Livonia transmission plant is striking over the fact that Ford isn't offering a 46% raise, why isn't every single other parts plant or assembly plant striking over that reason? So that could get the union in trouble. The other issue, which may even be bigger, at least in the minds of the workers, is what those workers would be paid. Now, if you strike, you get the strike fund money from the UAW. If you're laid off in a typical situation, you get about 95% of your take-home pay when you combine state-level unemployment with sub-pay from the automaker, supplemental unemployment benefits. Mm -hmm. It typically adds up to as much as 95% of your usual take-home pay. In this scenario, though, I'm told that workers who are laid off because of a ripple effect, right? Their assembly plant doesn't have the engines or transmissions from a striking bottleneck site. Those workers wouldn't receive subpay and that their unemployment benefits would vary by state. So you could have a situation, I think in Michigan, unemployment tops out at about 350 bucks a week at most, if I'm not mistaken. So you could have a situation where in that scenario, the workers who are actually on strike would be in a better financial position than the the other folks. So that would really defeat the purpose. So there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of complications. So while a bottleneck strike from one sense could be effective, it really is pretty risky. Well, and it's funny when you, not funny, but it is, uh, it's interesting, ironic when you talk about that, because uh, one of the things the UAW wants to fight about is ending what they see as tears where different workers get different outcomes for doing the same work, you create a strike with multi-tiers, you know, really across every state and depending on the, you know, the role of your plant could cause some trouble within the union. Now, I suppose the union could extend that strike pay maybe to those workers mm -hmm. in, in some fashion. I'm not really sure the legal issues there, but again, that would defeat the purpose and really deplete that strike fund quickly. I do. I, I, I accept that the threat and the risk of a three company strike is is real. But I'm also not sure that that has to be the way it goes in the fact that, I mean, I it's rare even for a UAW president to pick a strike target or to publicly identify one as soon as Labor Day. A lot of times they don't ever publicly say it. It just kind of gets out where you, everyone knows where the meetings are happening <laughs> that all the top people are at. Um, of course, we've seen Unifor over in Canada settle on Ford as the company that they're negotiating with based on the local and committee progress that's been made and really kind of seeing a similar scenario here in the U.S. At least Ford felt like they got far enough at those levels that they could make an economic counteroffer, which apparently was at least good enough or legitimate enough to avoid being accused of unfair labor practices, which the UAW leveled against GM and Stellantis. Is there any thinking that, I mean, could Ford become the target and then they turn to GM and Stellantis or would they strike the other two and then come back at Ford? How might that play out, the interplay between the three? Well, you could see a number of scenarios. And right now, to your point, at least publicly, it looks like Ford may be further along than the others. I've been told, at least as of 
Wednesday early afternoon that there hasn't been a formal offer from GM or Stellantis since those unfair labor practice charges were filed. So they're still in that weird in-between phase. There's still some subcommittee work going on at all the companies, honestly, uh, but they, they haven't gotten to that point where they've put forth an offer. Ford has, so you could make the argument that Ford's a bit further ahead. Now, I've also been told internally the union is very much preparing to continue negotiating with all three at the same time, that Fane's words about the Detroit three being their target are absolutely true. It's not just posturing. But when we get down to the nitty gritty, when it's September 13th or September 14th before midnight, if one's further ahead, you could certainly see them focusing negotiations there, or they could walk out on all three and say, whoever's first with the best offer will work with you. So things could happen post September 14th there, but as of right now, as far as I've been told, they really do intend to negotiate with all three through the end of this. How does the unfair labor practices allegations, if supported by the National Labor Relations Board, how does that play into the strike options? You don't even necessarily need it to be supported by the NLRB. You don't need a decision. And there's likely not going to be a decision before September 14th. These investigations in these early stages often take weeks, if not months. But having those ULPs against GM and Stellantis means that the union could call what's known as an unfair labor practice strike. Typically, strikes are over economic issues or health and safety issues. Mm -hmm. And in contract negotiations, they're typically economic, right? The union disagrees, does not like what the companies are offering, so they walk because of that. In this case, they would have an excuse to walk over a pending unfair labor practice charge. That makes it pretty clear. It seems to make it easier for the union to walk out, at least at GM and Stellantis. Now, further down the road, they have a few more protections there because if the charges are upheld in the NLRB rules in the union's favor and says, yeah, they were negotiating in bad faith, that means the companies can't hire permanent replacements for the striking workers. Now, that's sort of thinking three or four steps ahead. Mm -hmm. It's probably rare that GM or Stellantis would even think about that, but that is one protection. Another protection they would have is that if the NLRB rules in their favor and that strike were to end and they were be forced to come to an agreement through a third-party mediator, all those workers would be eligible for back pay since the start of the strike. So that would really give these workers another protection in mm -hmm. that case. It could be argued that this may be just for show because when you talk about ULPs, a vast majority of the time, they're decided before they're formally decided. The NLRB investigator will essentially go to the parties and say, hey guys, work this out yourselves. If we actually take this up, we may rule against you, UAW, or we may rule against you, GM and Stellantis, and you don't want that. You don't want a third party stepping in. So figure this out on your own. And typically they will, right? If you come to a contract agreement, those charges would be dropped. So a lot can happen with that, but it could give the union an easy way to call a strike. There's a lot of concern if there's a strike, one company targeted, all three that it could have significant ripple effects on the auto industry in a larger sense, the suppliers, the dealers, and also the economy. What are the experts saying about that? Well, we've seen an Anderson Economic Group study about a month or so ago saying if there was a strike at all three, it would cost about $5 billion after 10 days. Wow. Right? So, and that's, you know, we talked at the beginning about the union's dwindling strike fund. 
that they could still last a couple months, mm -hmm. right? So that's far longer than 10 days. And that could, could be way more than $5 billion. We've talked to some experts at various forecasting firms. And, uh, there was a, a research note, uh, by Baird that said a six week strike at all three could cost, I think, 800,000 vehicles, mm -hmm. units of production. Uh, the folks at global data say, uh, walk out at all three, if it lasts as long as possible could cost the industry 1.5 million vehicles. That's a lot. And, you know, you mentioned the ripple effect on suppliers, on dealers, on customers. You think about folks who work inside plants, they're not all Ford or GM or Stellantis employees. They have a lot of contractors. Mm -hmm. Would those contractors be able to go in the assembly plant? Would they lose out on jobs? If you're a unionized construction company building an addition onto a plant or building a new plant right now, would you be allowed onto company property to continue that construction? So this could have drastic ripple effects across the economy. Well, and then the competitive dynamic, right, is the fact that these are three big companies, uh, but there's a lot of other big companies that they compete with, uh, Tesla, Toyota, Hyundai, uh, Volkswagen, who, you know, are running their plants full speed and would be trying to take a lot of those sales and make those customers, uh, you know, convert away from the UAW automakers. So there could be an argument made that the Detroit three could survive and weather a strike even of a, a decent length, because you look back a couple of years ago at COVID when plants were forced to shut down, but everybody's plants were mm -hmm. forced to shut down. You didn't have your rivals continuing to crank out cars and make those sales. That's the real issue for these companies right now. Michael Martinez is our man on Ford and the UAW. Busy times ahead. Uh, thanks for all your coverage. Thank you. You can find Mike's full analysis at autonews.com. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Kellen Walker. Thanks to Automotive News Coordinating Producer Jake Neer and Alicia Anderson. Today's episode included reporting from our own Molly Boygon, Larry Balquette, CJ Moore, and Audrey LaForest. You can get the latest news on promotions, recalls, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. Come back tomorrow for a conversation with Blue Space AI's Christine Moon about better strategies for autonomy. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.